it took about four to five years for me to finally decide I want to face the ghost of the past. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of Benall of America Audio Season 2. It is October 21st, 2006. This week, we go down a road less traveled here on Benall of America Audio. We'll be discussing The Afterlife with Dennis Spaulding, co-author of My Search for the Afterlife, A Trail of Clues. What really appealed to me about Dennis Spaulding from reading his book is that he is pretty much just like you or me. He's just an average person who was plunged into the world of the esoteric. He's not out there saying that he has all the answers. He's out there saying he's searching for the answers, and here is what he has found throughout his search. So I really appreciate and enjoy that kind of perspective on the afterlife, and that's why I wanted to bring Dennis on the show. We're going to be talking about his story, how it started, how it evolved, what he believes to be numeric codes used by his son as a form of communication, animal messages, dreams and visions, mediums, medium workshops, and, of course, tons and tons more. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dennis Spaulding, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Dennis Spaulding is a former government air traffic controller who retired and moved into the private sector of air traffic control, settling in the Pacific Northwest in the Seattle metropolitan area. He's the father of four children, one of whom, Sean, passed away in early 1993. His book, My Search for the Afterlife, A Trail of Clues, is the result of that devastating effect when a parent loses a child. After a few years, he became determined to find his son in the afterlife. He kept a log throughout his journey. What he found during his search, and continues to find on a regular basis, has turned his life around and allowed him to find what he perceives to be his purpose in life. His website is www.mysearchfortheafterlife.com. Without any further ado, this interview was recorded on August 16, 2006. Dennis Spaulding on Banal of America Audio, Season 2. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio. My guest this week is Dennis Spaulding. He is the author of My Search for the Afterlife, A Trail of Clues. And it is an amazing story. Sadly, his son passed away, and then over the course of about 10 years or so, he developed uh, a theory that turned into the story that is My Search for the Afterlife. We're going to dig all into it, but the best thing I can say about the book is it's fantastic and when I received the book, I opened the package and had left it on the kitchen table after I opened it and looked through the stuff, and I go up to get it the next day, and it's already gone. My mother has taken the book. She read the book. She loved the book, and she never reads any of the books from the Banal of America audio guests. So that's about as good an endorsement as you can possibly get. And the book, again, is My Search for the Afterlife, A Trail of Clues. Dennis Spaulding is the author, and he's our guest this week on Banal of America audio. Welcome to the show, Dennis. Thank you, Tim. How are you today? I'm doing well. Uh, well, let's start out a little bit with your bio, your background. Uh, what was your life like before your story began here, this this search for the afterlife story? 
grew up in a typical family, started out in the Methodist church with my parents every day, every Sunday. I'd rather go out and play baseball and football, but uh, every Sunday morning found me in church. <laughs> well, as I grew up through the years, uh, my preference in church kind of changed. Uh, as I got into my high school years, I went from the Methodist belief into the Baptist belief, helped out at summer camp. As I went on and uh, went into the military, and I met my uh, first wife, which is uh, my son's mother, I converted to the Catholic faith. And then, uh, unfortunately, uh, we did go through a divorce about after five years of marriage, and uh, through another lady I had met, I went through the Lutheran faith, and, and finally uh, kind of back into the Catholic faith you know, mm-hmm. right before my son had died. Uh, what I'm getting at on that is just, I've been through the gamut of religions. Yeah. And when you face, you know, the death of a child, the religions weren't doing it for me. Yeah. And uh, my background, work background, basically, uh, right after high school, three days after high school, I went into the Marine Corps. I was in the Marine Corps for about four years. I lost a lot of friends during the Vietnam War. I had orders three times to go to Vietnam, and for some reason, each time, it was canceled. It wasn't I didn't want to go. It was, I guess, God had a reason for me. And everybody believes uh, as you grow up, there's a purpose in life. And what's your purpose in life? You know, what is it? You're spending years trying to find that out. Well, it took the death of my son to find out what my purpose in life is. I am not a medium. I'm not a psychic. I don't profess to be. I am a father that lost a son, and I've told a story. And I've got a story to tell that I believe can help people that have lost a child. And I've got an ongoing story of something that happened this this year after the book has come out that shows and tells me my journey is ongoing. I have something else now that can help people that have lost a child that never made it into this world. So I've been lucky enough to find out what my purpose in life is. And I think that's why God kept me around during the Vietnam War era to do this. After uh, I got out of the military, I went to work for the airlines, did a lot of traveling around the world, around the countries, around the states. I did that for about seven years. Then I moved into air traffic control with the government. Spent about 21 years in uh, service with the government as an air traffic controller. Served uh, basically back in Ohio. I started out Indiana. Then I moved to the West Coast. Then eventually I went overseas to Pago Pago, American Samoa. I should also say uh, Sean's mother was from Trinidad down in the Caribbean. So I spent about 19 months living down there. So I've been a lot of unique places. And when I came back from Pago Pago back to Klamath Falls, Oregon, that's where I received the word that my son was killed in 1993. And so uh, from that point, uh, after moving out of Klamath Falls in 1995, we came up to the Seattle area. Where I spent another two years at one of the airports up here as air traffic control for the government. Then I decided it was time to retire from the government. But three days later, I'm doing the same type of a job as of today in air traffic control with a contractor. Yeah. But I'm able to receive my government pension and move on from there. Nice. But what I'm trying to do right now is the success of this book, once that has climbed the charts, then I'm free to give up this air traffic control, my wife will be free to give up her job, and we can travel across the country and telling our story and helping as many people as we can. That's kind of my background. Nice, nice. Okay. Um, so from what I gather from the story, uh, after your son passed away, about four years later, 
uh, you started to take a keen interest in the afterlife and afterlife communication, and that's sort of when you started to discover uh, what you call the numbers theory in the book? Yeah, basically, uh, all through my life, I've always felt, even as a kid, right growing up, there's something happening right next to you. There's another world going on. Yeah. It's either spinning too fast, spinning too slow. You can't see it, but it's there, and I've always sensed that. Well, needless to say, when you lose a child, it's it's the worst thing. It's like someone rips into your heart, pulls it right out, and the earth opens up and swallows you, and you just don't want to face life anymore. Yeah. But um, it took about four to five years for me to finally decide I want to face the ghost of the past and find my son. So I basically turned to spirituality. My two best friends turned out to be the library and the bookstores. Yeah. I read as many books as I could on spirituality, and I came across a lady, famous lady on TV. She's always on Montel Williams' show now. Her name is Sylvia Brown. Yeah. Well-known psychic medium. Started reading a lot of her books and practicing a lot of her meditation techniques. And as it turns out, those meditative techniques and everything I was you know, practicing has now built up my psychic and spiritual awareness. And not knowing at the time, but that's what it developed. Yeah. And so that went on for about four or five years, and I kept thinking I'm getting closer and closer and closer to contacting my son. Yeah. Well, uh, several years later, in 2002, I let me just back that a little bit. I retired from the government in 1997, and that's when I decided to come out of the shell. My son died in 1993, so that's about four years. And I came out of the shell, started my spiritual training in about 1997. Yeah. So for five years until 2002, one of my associates, where I work, mentioned a gentleman that was coming on the TV scene called John Edward, yeah. crossing over with John Edward. And I said, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to find my son through Sylvia Brown. I basically had tunnel vision. I didn't want to drift from the path I was on because I kept feeling stronger and stronger that with all of my uh, meditation and everything I'm doing, mm -hmm. I'm going to eventually find my son. Well, one day uh, I was channel surfing at home uh, right before going to bed. My wife was out in the kitchen doing something. And all of a sudden, the program pops on, John Edward crossing over. I started looking at that. And I yelled for my wife to come in here. Well, John does his his uh, communication a little bit different. Sylvia's like a psychic medium, gives information for the past, future, basic things like that. John's yeah. a medium. A medium is a go-between between the spirit world and this world, and he passes messages. Well, I was just awestruck watching the program. And I was at a fork in the road now, a little psychic crossroad that I... <laughs> knew this gentleman or this way is going to bring my son and I together. So I started reading all of John's books and everything like that. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the books that he was part of was by uh, two professors out of the uh, University of Arizona called the Afterlife Experiments. Yeah. And... These two professors wanted to prove the afterlife truly existed. And in order to do this, to prove their theory, their thesis, they had to use the four top mediums they filled across the country were going to help them prove this. And the four mediums were John Edward, George Anderson, Suzanne Northrup, and Laurie Campbell. 
And all of their tests and everything had to be uh, double-checked, triple-checked, quadruple-checked, and everything because their careers are going to be put on the line once they publish this. Yeah. Well, I found the book amazing. And also, all I wanted after reading that was a reading from one of these mediums. Yeah, yeah. I said, wow, this is, this, this is something. Well, most of my communication with my son is intuitive. I, I sense, I feel, I'm drawn, I'm pulled to do something. Yeah. And after reading this book one week, about a week later, I'm, I'm just drawn to pick it up, and I go to the back for some reason, and all of a sudden I see the websites for these mediums. And Suzanne Northrup comes right to mind, right out of the forum, jumps right out. And I'm, I'm right on the computer to her website, and I'm drawn to the calendar. I hit that. Boom, she's coming to Seattle where I live three months later. Nice. And before my brain catches up with what my hand is doing, I'm already ordering tickets. <laughs> Ladies coming on the phone, yes, how many? I said, oh, you know, I'm ordering tickets. So yeah. now I, I was at work on my break doing that. So I was anxious to get home, tell my wife what's going on, that uh, all of the stuff we had seen on television, John Edward, we had never done this live. It was always a gallery. John Edward always had a gallery reading or he would do phone readings or one-on-one -on -one readings. Yeah. Well, I never, I didn't have an idea what this seminar was all about. I mean, common sense tells you what a seminar is, but when you're dealing in the psychic world, anything's possible. Exactly. So I wasn't sure, but I, I got home that night. My wife comes home. I'm excited. I said, guess what? In three months, we're going to go to a seminar. We're going to actually be in the audience and be live with this stuff. And I, I was just excited. Yeah. I, I couldn't sleep all night long. I, I was trying to think, okay, what am I supposed to do to get the attention of this person? What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to ask the questions, sit in the front row, and yada, yada, yada? Yeah. Well, I go to work the next day, and I'm on my break, and I remember the girl that told me about John Edwards said his show comes on about this time. Mm -hmm. So I turn on the television, and the show comes on, and there's John Edwards starting out as normal. But then he says, well, today we're going to show you something different. I'm going to take you back to a seminar I did in Salt Lake City and show you how you get a reading. He answered every question I had the previous night. My jaw dropped open. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. And so uh, I knew something was going on in my life at this time that I couldn't explain. Mm -hmm. So I fast forward three months. Suzanne Northrup is coming to town. Now, for some reason, she was going to be in Seattle on a Monday. Now, this is the week before, and I'm getting to where the number theory developed. Okay. Um, I, I get pulled to the computer again, to her website, and I pull it up, and, well, it shows she's coming a week early to do radio shows and talk shows. This wasn't on the website before when I ordered tickets. Yeah. So I go, wow. So I take down the information, and my plan at the time was, since my wife works past the air times of these radio shows and that. I was just going to tape them, the TV show and also the radio interview, for her to get an idea and also myself of what this lady sounds like, how she delivers her messages, something to just prepare us for the following week. Yes. Well, on the day of the radio show, I got the tape in there ready to tape, sit back and listen. The disc jockey goes, well, Suzanne's going to be with us here in about 10 minutes. Anybody has lost a loved one, here's the number to call. If you want to try to connect, once again, there goes my hand without my brain knowing. <laughs> and it's like I meant to get through. It just rings. The guy says, hi, have you lost a loved one? I said, yeah. You want to know his name? They go, no. You wait for Suzanne to call your name and start talking. So I said, okay. Well, I waited on the phone, and I could hear the whole radio show going on yep. for 25 minutes. Now, 
before I get into the, the number theory, let me and what happened. Let me tell the people what it is. It involves when my son passed over, which is March fourteenth, nineteen ninety three. So it's three fourteen ninety three. If you write that down, it also involves when he was born, nine for September the twenty fourth, sixty eight. Now, there's also a couple of the numbers, 29, which is the last time together we were at his sister's 21st birthday party in Reno, Nevada. Him and I played roulette constantly, and we always played the number 29. And there's a story with that on the television. And the other number is 39, which represents Sean's name in the 26-letter alphabet. Mm-hmm. It totals 39, S-E-A-N. So anyhow, I, I am sitting there waiting and all of a sudden, the disc jockey goes, and now we have Dennis on the line. And Suzanne Arthur goes, hi, Dennis, who do you want to talk to? And I said, my son. Now, as I said that, you know, air traffic controller is supposed to be able to do multi-talented things. So <laughs> I wrote down the time. It was 8.36 in the morning. So I wrote 8 semicolon 36. Yep. Then I did a backslash. And I wrote 24-9 as another way of saying it, mm-hmm. 24 minutes to 9. Well, she connected with my son. It was phenomenal. I just, I was shaking from, you know, head to foot, hair rising all over. Now, she did have some misses, which when I taped this, my wife and I also noticed that, that, well, she talked about, well, you must have loved to go fishing because he's showing me a fishing pole yeah. and things like that. Well, I never fished. I, I fished once when I was a kid, and I used wieners as bait, and I wound up eating it and going home. <laughs> but uh, we went uh, skiing, and I took him out for his first skiing thing and broke his leg and took him back to his mom and said, well, sorry. <laughs> but as I learned, as my story went on and my book went on, when a spirit is coming through to talk to his father, the medium doesn't know what had happened prior. In other words, I divorced his mom, I remarried, and he had a brother, you know, through the marriage I, yeah. you know, through my new wife. Mm-hmm. But his mom also remarried at the same time I did and had a, a brother. Yeah. Well, his message was twofold. In other words, it wasn't for me. It was for his other dad, his stepdad. But the medium didn't know this. He just knows it's a, a spirit coming through for the father. And I didn't figure that portion out until probably months later or something like that. But it's talked about in the book. Yeah. Okay, so so anyhow, um, the disc jockey kind of wanted us to get off and more people to do. So it's only about five minutes. Yeah. And uh, so a lot more stuff went on this week before the actual seminar took place the following week. We went to the seminar on that Monday. Nothing happened. However, we got to see firsthand and feel firsthand what they can do and what they can bring to people and the connection they can make. And it's just it just draws you into this. And you're just so emotional. You're not getting a reading, but maybe the guy behind me, who it was, he was. He was an older gentleman. Yeah. But, oh, the tears in my eyes and everything. But um, when we walked out, my wife was a little bit disappointed because we didn't get a reading, but we fell back on the one four days earlier from the radio. I said, we still have that. So yeah. she goes, yeah, we are lucky to have that. The very next day I was off. She was at work. I started playing the radio interview once again. Just a lot of times you miss something. Yeah. And I'm looking down at the numbers. I wrote 8 semicolon 36 backslash 24-9. And then my eyes caught it. I went backwards right to left. I read 9, 24, 68. That's when he was born. 
And I looked at the three and the nine in the formula. I said, three, nine. Well, 39 meaning Sean, three representing March, you know, for the month, and 93 for the year he died. I go, wow, that is strange. And I started thinking, I wonder. That was the initial start of my number theory. And like I tell everybody I talk with, this theory is for me. Yeah. It, it's something I came up with that means something to me that my son is trying to communicate, you know, through that way. The only thing I didn't have there was the biggest number of my story, the 14, which is the actual day he died. Now, some people say, well, why doesn't he just uh, communicate you with showing you 14? Why this complicated stuff? I said, I don't know. Go ask the spirit world. Yeah. You know, I said, I can only go by what I feel, what I sense when a lot of things happen. Yeah. And our communication isn't always numbers. There's things like butterflies, license plate. But uh, finding my son, this number theory had a whole lot to do with it. Now, yeah. about a month later, my brother came to town. And he found the missing 14 for me in a simple theory, in a simple number, you know, little theory thing. Yeah. I, I, I won't give that away over there. They can uh, see that in the book. Exactly. But uh, uh, we were watching uh, John Edward, oh, probably about a month after that after the phone interview with Suzanne, and I kind of look over at my wife. Uh, it's on a break from the program. And I says, you know, it would have been good if Suzanne would have told me what Sean and our special number was. That would have been a good validation to prove that, yes, she really is talking with Sean. She goes, yeah. And I says, well, you don't even remember what it is. She goes, yes, I do. She said, when we were in Reno, you and him played roulette all the time, the number 29, and not more than five seconds after she said that, we got a large TV in our living room we yeah. were looking at. That screen filled up with the biggest 29 number I have ever seen with a 95 up in the right-hand corner. They were advertising some product. We have never seen it on TV to this day, and it's been, what, four years now or something. Yeah. And the hairs, on they just stood, and I look over at my wife, and I just go, did you see that? She goes, ah, yeah. And so I talked to my son then. I said, thanks, son, for letting me know you're here. I'm you know, glad you're around watching. Yeah. And the 95, if you add that together, makes a 14. Mm -hmm. So so that's kind of the start of how the number of things develop. And it just got more things, more intriguing things would happen with newspapers arriving or newsletters arriving or this or rooms I'm placed in at hotels or things like that where it just – a, a simple thing to tell people, uh, two things I can that are simple. Uh, 314, March 14th. Uh, I belong to a Scottish Highlander clan called Clan Murray. I'm a Spalding, so I'm a sept of that. And I help run our tents when we go to these Highlander events. Well, there was an event that was going to take place several hours north of Seattle. It was a one-day event on a Saturday. Now, we didn't want to drive up Saturday morning to help put up the tent you know, and then have the function that day and come home. So we chose to go up a day early, spend the night at a hotel and have dinner, and we went up with our uh, clan commissioner. Mm -hmm. Well, three months before that, I made my hotel reservation. I says, we're going to arrive early. I don't want to wait till 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I want to be able to get my room probably about 10 o'clock. Yeah. That's the, that's the only request I made. Mm -hmm. The day before leaving, I started talking with my son, Sean. I says, hey, you never saw your dad wearing a kilt in real life. Why don't you come on up, laugh if you want, laugh at me in the kilt, listen to the bagpipes, watch the dancing girls. We'll have a good time. Well, we arrive at the hotel, walk in, check in. He says, yes, 
Mr. Spaulding, I got your room all ready for you. And he hands me a key. And I look at it, and, and I must have blurted out some noise or something because it shocked me. He goes, uh, if that's, you don't like that, I got plenty of other rooms to give you. I said, that'll work just fine. It was room 314. What better way for my son to say, hi, Dad, I'm here. Let's go have fun. Yeah. Another simple one that was not in the book. This happened uh, right after the book came out, and this is going to be in book number two. This happened last year in October. Uh, the movie Just Like Heaven was released last year, and this starred Reese Witherspoon, and I think it was Mark Ruffalo. Mm -hmm. And what had happened, she was like a doctor and supposedly died, and finally her relatives rent out her one-room flat in a very you know, prestigious neighborhood. Yes. Well, this guy gets it. Well, she comes back haunting him, not realizing, you know, the way the story goes, that she may be dead. Yes. And it was a love-hate relationship, a comedy thing. Really, really good, really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, for the story now, my son is buried in Warrior, Alabama, where his mother lives. She wanted him close to her back in Alabama, and I'm in Seattle, and I, I had no problems with that. And once again, he also died in March. So... As we're walking out, my wife notices a car sitting in front of ours that says, look at that car. It's got Alabama license plates. And I go, oh, really? So like anything, I I take notes. I'm an avid note taker now. Yeah. And uh, tuck that away. The very next day, we went out to the fairgrounds. This is the next day. And they were having an Oktoberfest out at the local fairgrounds. So we went out there, had a good time. We're coming back. I start to get in the car, and then I pause a second. And I remember the day before. I said, so I purposely walk around my car, look at the car next to us. And sure enough, there's another car with Alabama license plates, and it's got an expiration tag for March. <laughs> now, to me, that was my son giving me another sign that said, Hi, Dad. Enjoy the movie about heaven. Love the fair. See you later. That wasn't basically a number theory. That was tied with, you know, license plates and stuff like that. Yeah. It's an ongoing type of uh, communication. And what I can tell people is once you can tune in psychically and spiritually of how your loved ones are trying to communicate with you, it's one of the best things in life you can feel. I mean, you can once again rejoin your family, your sons, and the times when you're feeling low, when one of these little signs comes to you that they're around you and, and they're watching you and they're there. It just can, you know, the mood just changes and you're just happy all again and yeah. so forth. So it, it, it's really fantastic. Um, now, uh, since the publication of your book and, and uh, obviously uh, the work th uh, that you were doing before came out, uh, have you heard from any other people or have you discovered any other folks who have uh, their own sort of number connection to a deceased loved one? Uh, you, are you not alone in this in this sort of uh, scenario? Uh, since the book has come out during our advertising stuff, uh, I've gone to the military bases here in the up in the Seattle area. I was trying to do that once a month here, but now with my schedule, stuff like that, I have to do about every two months. And I set up a kiosk card at one of the local malls up here. And I was doing that about once every month, and now I've had to uh, cut back a little bit because of my other job to maybe once every three months. Yeah. And every so often, people will come back to me and tell me their own number theories or basic things like that. Mm -hmm. in, in my book... I talk about a lady that I met at the John Edward seminar, my very first seminar for John 
we talked for about five and a half hours waiting in line. We told stories about our son. She lost a son in the military also. And his favorite number, their special number, was the number 11. Well, when, when it came time for my book, I, I got permission to tell our, our little story about this. And um, she, when I sent the book to her after it came out, she wrote me a very quick email. She thanked me for writing about her son in the book. She says, the only thing that I was disappointed in when I got the book, she says, was you did not have the story about my son in Chapter 11. You know, since that was our special number. Yeah. And I had to explain to her, uh, you know, once I responded to that email, that my book is in chronological order. When the events happen, that's what I call them. These things, I call them events in my life. Mm-hmm. When they happen, it it's written when they happen. I can't put something out of context, as, you know, to put it here in Chapter 11 when I'm talking about it in Chapter 9 or something like yeah. that. Well, her original email went on. She said, well, I put your book down, and I went on to finish my housework. And she says, while I'm vacuum cleaning, I kept hearing in my mind, check the numbers, Bob, check the numbers. She says, I couldn't figure out what it meant. She says, I shut off the vacuum, I walked back to the desk, I picked up your book, and I went back to Brian Paul's story. And I'm reading it again. It's on pages 113 and 114 in my book. And she says, and there it was, right in front of me. She says, if you add page 113, 113, and 114, 114, you add those six numbers together, it comes to 11. She says it was right there. That was Brian Paul with a big number 11, you know, with a yeah. big hello and thanking me. So she wrote back several more times about other experiences where she lives in Salt Lake City, where Brian has said hello to her through numbers and basic things like that, or leaving coins by them in the middle of the supermarket when they were going somewhere. So she has relayed a lot of stories. And there's been several people that have come back and told me about numbers in their life. So yes, to answer your question, it does. Yeah. So maybe it's, uh, it's pretty prevalent. Maybe some folks haven't really caught on to it yet too. Right. Um, Talk a little bit about the blue butterfly aspect of your story. Uh, leave some for the readers also, you know, but uh, talk a little bit about that because uh, that's, that's pretty significant, too, in that, in that it's sort of perhaps a connection here with an earthly sort of creature um, showing themselves. Right. Basically, the blue butterfly right now means to me that Sean is around. And other people that have seen the blue butterfly, like when I was on a, a contact radio program, I was contracted on there for about uh, nine interviews. Mm-hmm. And during uh, one of the interviews, he came in and says, you know, ever since you talked about that story on air, that's all I've been seeing. Your son has been showing me this and this and this <laughs> and and different things. And I said, yeah, that's just his basic way of saying, hi, I'm around. And from a recent reading that I've gotten now from a uh, shaman or another medium who have, has Indian heritage in him, he's up in British Columbia, he says, we have now gone from the butterfly to the dragonfly. He says, that's your son's new thing now. He says, when you see the dragon fly around you, that's him coming around saying hello. But basically what had happened in the story, uh, when I felt it was time to bring Sean's mother in on what's going on, that I was writing a book and different things going on in my life, I hadn't talked with her in probably, oh, probably 10 years. Yeah. So I called and brought her up to date. I let her hear the interview on the radio with Suzanne Northrup. And I was afraid when I called that time that 
you know, I don't know what she's going to think or what's going on, but she was very receptive. But the reader's going to find out how that story goes. Her being real receptive turned out to <laughs> bite me in the butt, so to speak, uh, <laughs> months down the line because I don't know if it was uh, something going on in her life. I don't know if her and her husband were having a problem, you know, with this yeah. because it had been so long since Sean had been had died, maybe it's opening old wounds. I never knew. But at, after our talk, she said uh, every time she visited Sean's gravesite in a cemetery, there is always, almost always, a blue butterfly that flew around. And she says she felt that was her son, Shawnee, she liked to call him. That was his way of saying, hi, Mom, I'm in a happier place, and I'm doing just fine. Well, after hanging up the phone and then having you know, wrote about this, I put a little thing in there that says, well, when I see the blue butterfly in the Pacific Northwest, then I'm going to know my son's out here around me. Now, some people accuse me and they say, well, you can find anything you want if you're looking. You can make something out of nothing or find whatever it is that you want to verify or validate whatever it is you're talking about. Yeah. I says, that's true. I said, but my blue butterfly story shows I wasn't searching for it. It found me. So, 13 months later, after this phone call, I'm on my way home from work, and I drive into a Starbucks and get out. As I'm walking up to the store, I see these two college-age females outside having a talk. One is her back is to me with her midriff bared, and there is a giant blue tattooed butterfly. I admit, yes, now I am looking, searching, <laughs> and I do see that butterfly. And my first thing out of my mouth is, Good afternoon, son. Glad to see you. I walk in the store, get my normal Starbucks drink out here in Seattle. It's very popular. I bet. You know, oh, yeah, every morning I have to have my two-shot Americana, yada, yada, yada. So anyhow, I come walking out. The girls are gone. I go, wow. So to me, that's an event. Yeah. I go home, and I go, when did I talk with Sean's mom about this? I look up my notes in the book, and I talk with her in February on the 26th, the previous year. Well, this is March 26th, 13 months later. And I go, wow, <laughs> there, there's something. Well, needless to say, like I said, you wanted to say something for the reader. The following month, something else happens. And the month after that. And what happens is, after this event happened, the numbers play a very interesting scenario on here that validates more towards my number theory. Let me play it that or say it that way. Yeah, yeah. The blue butterfly and the numbers theory sort of coincide. Blue butterfly, numbers, they all kind of come together and make people go, hmm, like my worst critic married to my daughter. His one thing that I treasure, I, he didn't believe everything I said. Mm -hmm. But as my book started going on, more writing, more of this, I always shared my information when things happened. And he looked at me one day, he says, you know, I don't necessarily believe it. He says, I'm not saying those are lies or nothing, but you have something going on in your life I can't explain. You know, it's yeah. very interesting, but I can't explain it. There's too many things going on for people to say that's a coincidence. Yeah. You know, when you've got a book that thick and you're on another book, that's not coincidence anymore. 
and I know that having, you know, studied under Suzanne Northrup and uh, these other mediums and that, that there's no such thing as coincidence. Everything happens for a reason. Yeah. So, um, talk a little bit about the importance of dreams to your story. Cause, uh, in a lot of times, uh, dreams happen to you and they sort of open up, uh, clues towards more investigation for you. Well, uh, dreams have, have always, uh, I started writing down a lot of dreams sometimes, and sometimes I can't explain it, and uh, other other times it, they're just so real, and a lot of times it would happen right after I had a, uh, a meditative session, maybe the day before, maybe two days before that, I would wind up having these like powerful dreams of whether it was my son, Sean, or uh, my brother that passed away, or different things like that. It was just like... You know, just just so real. And uh, I remember from some readings with mediums that I have had, my older brother, well, he likes visiting early in the morning, they say. And that's when I remember him appearing in some of my dreams. And what I also did to put the dreams together with my number theory, I started doing a test because the reason I did the test, I found myself waking up at certain times during the middle of the night and I would look at the clock to see what time it was. And what got me going on this test was, like one time I woke up at 3.14 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, wow, yeah. is that my son saying he's around me? So I started a one-week test and documented all of the times I woke up during the night for, yeah. I think it was about five or six days. And each time the numbers came out that fit within my theory. And since I'm six years old, sometimes I go to bed at 8 o'clock at night. I'm lucky if I stay up to 9.30. But this one night, the final day of my test, it was like I woke up at 39 minutes after midnight. And to me, like I said, 39 represents my son's name. Uh, that's why I called the book, my second book that's coming out, Messages from the Next World, his signature. I'm showing his signature now as 39. That represents his name. And when I saw that, that was like my son saying, okay, Dad, your test is over, Sean signing out. <laughs> you know, rather than his name, Sean, he just gives me a 39, says, okay, that's over. You've had a week of tests or whatever it was. You know, have I proved to you of what you thought about? So that's kind of my you know, my take on that. Yeah. Now, at what point uh, throughout this whole process did you go from thinking, uh, you know, mm, this is interesting, to like being, wow, there really is something to this. Like, was there a, a specific point where you were like, th- that you became a believer, for lack of a better term? My believing point came when I decided to find my son. And that started with Sylvia Brown. I was a believer at that point because I had always felt there was something beyond what we're taught here. All through my religions, I have always questioned. I do not stand there or sit there and listen to somebody tell me this is how it is without a question. Yeah. And if they can't answer the question, well, you know, I just don't take something at face value, you know. And so when I made that choice that I wanted to find my son, I was a believer at that point. And now I had to do what I had to do whatever it would take to find him. And all of the reading and, like I said, the spiritual and the psychic awareness and the meditation and everything I was doing was building my inner 
itself to be able to, you know, once again, make this uh, reunion with my son. And the book is written in two parts. It's my journey to find him. And the number clues was the main thing that happened during that time. And after our reunion, so to speak, in the book, chapter two is now our story together of letting other people realize that your loved ones are around you. I talk about a lot of mediums in my book. I, I go to a lot of mediums now, but these are ones that, not the shysters, these are the ones, uh, you know, the hardcore, the good mediums. And the reason I continue to go there is we, my son and I, and I always speak as our, like it's our story, our our book, our website, because we want to help people. And if I can be in a position to get a message from a medium to somebody that I know, I will be the messenger. I will pass that on. Now, I can't say what they're going to do once they receive this, Yeah. but I will be the messenger, pass on the information, and then, you know, go from there. Mm -hmm. Um. Now, I'm sure you've had your run-ins with the critics and the skeptics, so uh, what do you say to the people who are just non-believers who say, you know, that you're looking into it too much or you're, you know, anybody can find number connections and if you look at the numbers long enough and all that, that sort of stuff. I'm sure you've heard it all, so uh, oh, yeah. what, what do you say to those, uh, the critics and the skeptics out there? I said, yes, on, on the number theory, like you're saying, oh, yeah, people can make anything out of numbers, but... When you look at how it comes down to, in my life, representing, you know, the what I told you about, when he was born, when he died, mm -hmm. yes, I agree. Anything can be made out of anything. However, I fall back on my analogy. I say, let's say Seattle, Washington, where I live, that's heaven. Everybody's trying to get there. When I'm at my kiosk cart, the born-again Christians come up to me and say, no, there's only one way of getting there. you got to this, 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 and this, and this, and this. And I don't argue. I say, well, that's your belief. I says, I believe there's many roads to heaven. I says, if I was in Seattle, I said, I don't care how a born-again Christian gets to Seattle. If it was I-5 South, one of our major highways, that's how you get there. That's fine. If the Catholics want to come I-5 North, the Protestants want to come Interstate 90 from the east. The Jehovah Witnesses want to come, you know, yeah. Interstate 90 from the west. I says, if everybody makes it to Seattle, I'm a happy camper. I do not choose to judge how that person gets there. I says, but when you boil it all down, no matter what religion you're talking about, or my belief in the spiritual issue, the number theories, it's a belief. It's a six-letter word, belief. It floats your boat. It gets you through the killings, the wars of everything going on. But it's a belief, and you will not know until the day you die what's right. I said, I cannot believe that there's a God that will punish you, and you will be in eternal damnation because I didn't believe the way you wanted to believe as a born-again Christian. I didn't believe the way you wanted to believe as a devout Catholic. And I says, a belief is exactly what that word means. It's a belief, and you believe 100, 150, 200% your belief is correct. Well, I feel the same way. My belief now of what I've learned is correct, and I will go to the grave with that. And the day I die is when my eyes will open, and I will know, oh, wow, that's how it is. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. But I'll find out. And that's what everybody will find out on the day they die also. That's kind of the way I answer it. <laughs> okay. Um
Yeah, man, I'll tell you what, that dang old internet, man, you just go on there and point and click, 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 click. It's real easy, man. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens! What kind of radio show is this? Talk about the influence of Suzanne Northrup and John Holland. I wasn't too familiar with them. I'm not, I only dabble, really, in uh, research of the mediumship right. type stuff. So uh, talk a little, little bit about them and uh, how much of an influence they had on your work, because they obviously had a big, big influence. Uh, yes, Suzanne Northrup had the major influence because she was the one that actually reunited me with my son. And like I said, I found her from that book from the two professors that wrote The Afterlife Experiments yes. just by going to the back of the book. That's how I came across her and her website. Now, on her website one time, I found uh, she's got a, um, a place where a lot of her followers can do chats and talks back and forth. Yeah, like a message board. Yeah, a message board. I was on there one day just looking at her, reading some of the messages, and somebody mentioned John Holland coming to Seattle, and they're anxious to go, and I'm sitting there going, who's John Holland? Just like you just said. Yeah. You don't follow. I go, who's John Holland? So I did a uh, search on Google and stuff like that. I found out he's another top-name medium. And right now, uh, he's got books out of Hay House, and he's with Hay House and travels on tour a lot through uh, the lady that owns that uh, book publishing company. Well, I went to one of his seminars, and it was, you know, a small, not as big as uh, uh, John Edward when he came down. He, there were about 3,500 people that went to his. Well, this first uh, seminar with John Holland, there was only about 100, 150 people that came. So the less people that go to a seminar reading, you've got a better chance of receiving a reading yeah. from that medium. And so um, uh, the first time we went there, uh, he was very interesting. Uh, he does it a little bit different than Suzanne. Everybody has their own way of doing it, what they want to start. Well, he was doing a book signing right in the middle. He would give a speech about himself. And then before he started his readings, he would do his book signing, whereas Suzanne Northrup, she would wait till the very end of her whole seminar event, and she would do book signings. Well, this very first time with John, I, I talk about him a couple times in the book because there's a lot of unique things that happen. Well, we're walking up with a book for him to sign, and I just mentioned him. Uh, we didn't talk about this earlier, but uh, I my experiences with the the television number thing I talked about with yep. the 29 coming on the screen, mm -hmm. and also the radio reading with Suzanne. The number thing with the 836 and the 24 minutes to 9. That appeared that she got that off the website when I was doing a research thing on her website with the people that follow her. Uh, what they thought about that, about communication with numbers and basic things like that. I wanted yeah. to, another survey, pros and cons. Yeah. Well, that wound up in her second book, and I didn't know it. Without my name, it just said something. She was talking about numbers being a way that the spirits love to communicate with their loved ones and yada, yada, yada. She used your story. Yeah, she used a story. We were there and bought her second book in person, my daughter and I. I took my daughter. My wife wasn't able to go. And we went there. We didn't have a reading, but I got my daughter into what was going on because I said, when I die, you're going to take over. <laughs> well, we bought the book. Very next day, I started reading, and there it is on pages 19 and 20. That story, it flabbergasted me. But this is also part of the book because on pages 19 and 20, you add those two numbers together, there's your 39 again, yeah. John's name. And uh, so uh, I'm walking up in line, 
and I just mentioned to him why he's signing the book. I said, well, I, I said, this was a real good show. I'm happy you came to Seattle. I says, the, uh, the uh, last medium, you know, that I saw was uh, Suzanne Northrup, and uh, she actually mentioned something, you know, about us in her book. Mm -hmm. And he just drops his pencil. He shoves his chair back, and he looks at me, points his finger right up at me, goes, you're him! <laughs> and I, you, you know, so I start blushing now, and my wife's standing next to me, I look, I says, him? Yeah, aren't you the guy, uh, your son, the the communication on the television and some number theory and all that stuff? And I go, yeah, that's me. He says, oh, Suzanne talks about your story up and down the East Coast. You know, we're in Seattle now. I says, oh, really? He says, yeah. He says, I'm going to be talking with her over the phone on Monday. You want me to tell her you said hello? I says, yeah, fine. You know, yeah. so that, that just surprised me. But I was never one-on-one -on -one with Suzanne. Uh, her assistant that handled her websites mm -hmm. and different things like that. Her and I kind of became an email friend because when all these various things would happen at Suzanne's seminars or when I was on a TV show, there was a talk show up here in the Seattle area. Yeah. That something happened. And it was a last-minute thing. Well, they asked me to forward this information to her secretary, so to speak, so she would get this information and compile it. Yeah. So I was friends with her assistant or her secretary, whatever you want to show, you know, call her. But uh, she eventually left. But Suzanne and I were never really one-on-one -on -one with each other. The only time I had any communications with her was at the seminars I went to where she was there. I'd identify myself. She'd sign some books for me. And if I had a question, I, you know, the one time when I found my son and I was reunited with him, I had a whole list of questions there. And I was able to take time after the seminar and spend about 15 minutes with her, you know, yeah. showing her stuff about my story. And, uh, you know, when these mediums come down out of a seminar, they're still in a high. Yeah. I, I mean, they, they've got a, whatever they have to do you know, to talk with the spirits, they're still on an energy high. So you don't want to spend too much time with them. You need to let them, you know, wind down a little bit. So, you know, she just said to forward this information back to her office. And so that was my communication with Suzanne that way through her assistant. And uh, John Holland, kind of the same thing every so often, you know, at some of the stuff we would go to. But uh, now have they, uh, have they, do they know about your book? Have they read your book? Uh, have they read any communication about the book? Well, Are they, they fans of it yet? They are so huge, so to speak, in the uh, in the psychic realm yeah. that uh, I, I don't get an answer. I have given them complimentary books, you know, each one of them. Yeah. Um, All I can get is feedback. Uh, I, I've got a, a great story that shows how my son's name came on the front of the book. Originally, when the book was under publication, it was Dennis Spaulding, and it was the story, My Search for the Afterlife. And there's a story with a medium of how my son's name got on there. Well, I was talking with him one day. I was going to be on his radio show. And he had told me that John Holland, he was scheduling him for an interview also. And he had mentioned that that he was in contact with Dennis Spaulding, one of his, you know, that was talked about in the book. He's, oh, yeah, Dennis, yeah, he's he's really getting around, isn't he? So he knows who I am yeah, by name. And when I've come up to some of his seminars where one, it was an all-day seminar, and he was part of it, you know, and on a break, I happened to run into him. 
And he says, I saw you sitting in the audience. Do you think you're going to come to one of these and I don't recognize you? <laughs> you know, so they haven't really said, and, but by that point, he had not gotten the book when he had said that. Yeah. But I, I've never gotten feedback on the book. It's just, uh, which is fine because uh, people would say, well, if they know you, you know, how do you know what they're telling you is truthful? Yeah, exactly. And I said, yeah. right. And I said, well, you have to. To believe, I says, you have to put yourself in this person's place, like Suzanne Northup, over 20-some years, maybe almost 30 years. John Holland, same thing, ever since he was a kid. Are these mediums going to jeopardize their reputation in front of people to come to you and tell you something that maybe they remember a little bit from something else, maybe bits and pieces? Why would they put their reputation on the line to do something like that. Yeah. You have to look at the reality of that and go, what's coming through them, you believe in their gift. And what it is, it's a gift from God for these people. John Edwards, Suzanne Northup, John Holland, you go on. And I found ones that are not as popular now that I've been on their radio shows talking. And these people, which one I can talk about being reunited with another son. You know, these people have a gift, and I, I go with it. Now, uh, you said earlier you, you don't go to the shysters. Uh, how, do you, how does one separate uh, a more legit medium from someone who's, you know, not on the up and up? Is there any sort of way to tell? Well, through, through my research, I mean, I go through a lot of stuff. I came across this psychic weekly magazine. It's called OfSpirit.com. The gentleman's name who puts this out is Bob Olson. He has spent his lifetime as a non-believer at first mm -hmm. until something happened in his life and he went to a medium. And this medium wowed him. <laughs> and now his what he does, he puts out a list of mediums he has personally gone to like an investigative reporter. Yeah. On this. That's what it's all about. And that's what his magazine now is all about. It gives you books he recommends. It gives you mediums he recommends. That is not right out in the public eye. Like people say, oh, Sylvia Brown, John Edwards, stuff like that. Yes, those are gifted mediums. He admits that. But he gives you these ones that you may not be aware of. And this is how I found the gentleman where I talk about my son's name on the book cover. That's, I found him through this website, and this is the same website with this gentleman, as picky as he is. He just started an offshoot website called griefandbelief.com, and my book is on his recommended reading list. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. And it wound up on another mediums who also I've been on, on her, uh, her radio show. She has put my book on her recommended reading list. So it, it just takes a lot of investigation, but this is a good place to start. It's called ofspirit.com, and it recommends book. It recommends mediums. And then you can go to these mediums. When you have a successful reading, you go to their link page and find out who they're linking to. And they might even be recommending another medium where they have had success or something. Yeah. So you got to do your research. 
Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. You just don't go. Uh, your friend says, oh, go to Mary right down the road here. You know, whatever. <laughs> so. Now, you said, uh, like, when you when you went to the first seminar, you didn't get a reading. You kind of disappointed. Uh, what's the general atmosphere at these seminars? Are there, are there people who get upset because they don't get a reading? Because, like you said, with some of these John Edwards ones, there's, like, 3,000 people there or something like that. I mean. Oh, oh, oh yeah. And in the John Edwards, I think there was only maybe about about uh, maybe 12 people that get it. Most people, if they understand what this is all about, if you're meant to have a reading, you know, you're going to get it. Yeah. Uh, but some people, if you're not ready, in other words, if, if you just recently lost your child and you're not ready to accept something like this, more than likely your spirit, friends, family, relatives, aren't going to choose to come through. But, yeah, there are people that get upset. Uh, when I was on Northwest Afternoon this one time, uh, the person I talked with after the show wanted to get a tape, she says that there are people that call the show sometimes and says, hey, I was here, and blah, 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 and they spent too much time reading this person and that person, and I never got a reading. Yeah. Uh, what happened on that specific show is talked about in the book. Yeah. But it all comes about unexpectedly. This was a taping of a second show when uh, Suzanne Northrup was in town. And uh, they wanted to do two shows, one live and one taping for In the Can in case something came up where some other guest at another show never showed up. They could put this on in an emergency. Yeah. Well, at the end of the taping, the guy says, stand up, and we're all starting to go out. And then all of a sudden, the director calls down and said, no, he was unhappy with one of the six-minute segments he taped. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to do six more minutes of reading. So we all sit back down, and this is what I call my my overtime, <laughs> that this was meant to happen. Uh, she reads somebody first, a couple rows down from me, and then the host say, well, uh, do you have any more energy, Suzanne, before we wind up the show? And she goes, yes, I've got a real strong energy. Sean. She built out. Oh, she wow. don't know. She doesn't know I'm in the studio. She has yeah. no way of knowing. I hadn't seen her for over a year. And a girl in front of me goes, raises her hand, and she goes, uh, my name's Shauna. She goes, no, no, this is a strong male energy. And I raised my hand. I says, I've got a son, Sean. And uh, she says, well, why would he be showing me airplanes? And I says, I'm an air traffic controller. I'm with you. And, I, you know, and the host stands me up. Well, when I said something about... This was not my first reading. Yeah. Well, the show host got a little bit indignant with me. She goes, well, Jesus, if this is your first, my God, are you, uh, you know, made me feel like I was in there hogging readings. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm going, wait a second. I I can't tell the spirit world who to come to through this medium type thing, kind of defending myself in a yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, so so that was maybe an answer to your question. Why don't you, uh, one story that I really enjoyed uh, that, that, that would probably be pretty enlightening for the listeners is the story of the wedding picture uh, that you were at a, I think oh, you were at, yeah. you were at a, yeah. a funeral or a reception to a funeral and, 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 and a situation came up where you had almost a vision and it turned right. out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy type of thing. Why don't you tell that story if you don't mind? Cause it's really, uh, it's a great story and it is very unique within this, within your book because uh, it's one of the few times where you sort of have like a vision that, that, that comes true. It was my mom's funeral. We had to fly back from Seattle, Cleveland, Ohio, to bury my mom. And we were at her funeral. And uh, after the services, everybody was invited upstairs, you know, for the food and everything like that. And I got a, uh, a lot of compliments uh, from people that were at my brother's funeral 
a year earlier. Uh, I was invited to speak at my brother's funeral that time, and uh, where I thought I was talking for about five minutes, I rattled on for almost 45 minutes, <laughs> uh, much to the chagrin of the uh, funeral staff who wanted to get the doors closed. As we got upstairs, I see this one lady there, and I couldn't remember who it was. And uh, my younger brother, him and I were sitting across from each other. I said, who's that lady there? He says, that's Rita. I said, Rita? He said, Mike's wife. Mike. He says, okay. Jack, who was my older brother that died a year earlier, he says he was Jack's wife, Becky's brother, and he died many years ago. When you were younger, you used to play cards with him over at Jack's house. That's his wife. I says, oh, he said, now Mike's been dead for a lot of years. Yeah. He said, but that's Rita. That's okay. I got it. I got it. I remember. Yeah. yeah. So I got up, walked over, and thanked Rita for coming to my mom's funeral. She said, Dennis, I wouldn't miss your mom's funeral. She has been with me for so long. And, you know, well, she said, I want you to meet my daughter. I says, cool. She says, guess what? She's getting married next month. I said, oh, really? So I, I said, hi, how you doing? And I gave her that little congratulatory hug. Yeah. And then... As I did that, all I see in my mind is a church, an altar, and a picture in there. I just saw it. Mm -hmm. And I let her go, and Rita's standing behind me, yanking on my jacket, excited, jumping up and down. She says, and guess who's going to walk her down the aisle? Guess who's going to walk her down the aisle? And I says, uh, Rita, have you ever thought about putting a picture of Mike up on the altar so he can also see his you know, daughter walk down the aisle? Yeah. Well, that smile and happiness <laughs> drops. She says, are you crazy? I said, what? She says, I, have, I haven't gotten over Mike's death yet. After all of these years, she says, I would be a basket case at my own daughter's wedding. And her daughter says, uh, you know, Mom, I was thinking the same thing. And she goes, what are you talking about? She says, what he just said about having Dad's picture up there, but I know, you know, how you are about dad, I just haven't brought it up. And the mom starts crying. She goes, baby, I didn't know that. I, then I said, Rita, can I talk with you for a second? I pull her away. I tell her what's going on in my life. Yeah. I tell her everything that's happening. I said, this is what I saw in my mind. I said, I don't normally get this, but this is what I saw. I says, I'm taking it that if she's getting married within a month's time, your husband, Mike, it was his last chance to get this through to somebody. And knowing the situation I'm in right now with my son and how open I am to this stuff, that I would see this and I would now, like I'm doing right now, tell you. That was his last chance to be at his daughter's wedding. And she's looking at me. She says, let me tell you something. She says, on Mike's deathbed, his last words to me, no matter how long it will be, I will be at my baby's wedding. Trust me. And she said, Dennis, you have given me something to think about. And she gives me a big hug. And then uh, my nephew uh, was going to be going, you know, to that wedding. Yeah. And uh, I had told him what had happened uh, when we got back to our house of more of my, you know, celebrating, not celebrating, but, you know, the, the family thing with the death, you know, you yeah. go back and people come over. Mm -hmm. uh, he told me what his Aunt Rita had said. He said, yeah, my Uncle Dennis kind of a, kind of amazing and funny at the same time. He, he can say the right thing at the right time. It just amazes me. Well, a couple of weeks later, he calls me out of the blue. He had never called me before. We're just getting ready to walk out of the house, and I said, what's going on? He said, well, 
Uncle Dan, I just want to tell you, Aunt Rita and, uh, you know, her daughter, they're on their way uh, to get that picture in large to put it up on the altar. <laughs> so it, it just made me feel really good. And I got to really see what how the medium sees something. Yeah. Now, now it hasn't happened a lot. You know, that was, I would say, one of my first, and I'm still waiting to see some other ones, but because I was helping somebody and it was so close to the deadline where that event would be over for Mike, he did what he had to do, and I was receptive to it, and I felt very good that I could help him. Yeah. Um, now, do you recommend people uh, choose, like, a number or an animal um, to share with their loved one before they pass on so that that sort of communication can be facilitated? Is that something that you recommend? I, I wouldn't say choose. I would just say you start developing your own spiritual awareness and let them choose how they want to come to you, where it's, you know, when you can recognize that sign. Now, like I, I said, the dragonfly has been brought up. That's because I was having a reading, and this was brought up to me. Yeah. Now I'm... I am receptive to it, just like a song was brought up to me, uh, Crimson and Clover by Tommy James and the Shondell, that that is a special song. Every time you hear it, that is a gift from your son saying, hi, Dad, how are you? And many, many times I've been driving or sitting at a restaurant sad about something or whatever, get in the car, turn on the radio, Crimson and Clover, <laughs> things like that. So it isn't something I have director for myself is something that has come through my research, through stuff that is brought to my attention that it happens. So I could not say no uh, when on somebody's best that, well, you come back to prove to me that you by this number. I have heard stories that people have talked with their loved ones and said that when you cross over, let me know you're okay by doing this and this and this. I have read stuff where that has happened. Yeah. So I'm not going to say, no, don't do that. I mean, if that works and they do do that, wow, what a gift that is to you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, how did it feel to write the uh, your story in the first person? I mean, a lot of people... Uh, put out books that are that are sort of research oriented and then you know they're they're sort of cocooned and safe that the, the book is sort of you know written in the third person or something but yours is written in the first person you really put uh you really put yourself out there it took a big risk in a way uh to to like make the story about yourself and to uh shine that criticism back onto yourself how was it's a very brave choice too well what did you think about doing that the story in the first person that's just the way you thought it had to be told it's the way it had to be told. It's the way I try to tell the story now. I speak from my heart. We are trying to help people. We are trying to let people just understand what our story is about. People that have not lost a child cannot really understand what you go through, what your feeling is. Yeah. And uh, criticism, well, like I said, belief, you know, everything. I'm, I'm, I'm 60 years old. I don't need to, you know, worry about people, oh, this yeah. is this or that is that. Well, that's fine. This is, we're trying to help people. The people that want our help are drawn to us. It, it's just like when we ran the kiosk cart at the mall. People would see our book up there. They'd see my signage to get their attention. I, I would have stuff on there that says, your lost loved ones are only a thought away. Now, people, even kids, little kids, teenagers, you see them walking by, you can read their lips. Yeah. And I could guarantee when that couple, kids or whatever, walked to the end of the mall, as soon as they read my sign, they're thinking of somebody that just died. When they come back, they read it again, they're still thinking of that. 
person that died. Now, that person up there that died is happy with me. They've opened up the mind just a crack in their loved ones where they're getting some thoughts. Now, maybe they're going to react on that, maybe not. Now, it takes a special person to be drawn over to me to talk about the book and whatever it is they want. And I would get references from these people, certain things like uh, the one came over and her mom that died, her birthday was mine, February 10th. Her dad was a conductor. And at the mom's funeral, they heard the train off and the whistle, and she says, yeah, you know, her grandfather was a conductor. Well, so was my grandfather. The parallels, and I wrote about that on my website. I had a monthly thing going on at the time, yeah. and I wrote about the parallels of people that came up. Everybody that comes up to talk to me, I listen to their story, and all of a sudden I will hear what I think was a parallel that drew them to me. Because when I start talking about my story, about them, or offering to put the name of their loved one, I've got this, uh, the Garden of Flowers on my website. It's a cemetery on the Internet, and it's free whether people buy the book or not. It's a place to help these people to place the name of their loved one on this site. They can go there away from any critics or skeptics in the comfort of their own home. They can look at this name on the site. It starts out with a nice waterfall, some poems and that. The names are there, nice beautiful flower setting underneath. And they can listen to the pan flute music playing Wind Beneath My Wings as they meditate. They empty the baggage they've been carrying for some time in their mind. Maybe they got to the hospital 10 minutes late and dad passed. They never got a chance to say what they wanted to say to dad. This is a place you can empty that stuff, and hopefully you're going to feel that psychic hug from your loved one. Yeah. Uh, just talk a little bit about the journey of the book, because part of the book, I really like this too, was uh, part of the book is the story of the book itself, which is really uh, interesting in how the book started out sort of as a message from uh, your son through Suzanne Northrup, and then you wanted to really sort of do it as like a short story thing through her people, and then it turned into a full novel, and, right. and then you were having troubles with getting it published, and now here it is, I'm holding it in my hand, so... You know, that must have been an exciting and at times difficult journey. It is. It originally started out, I, I was just taking notes. I was to find my son. That's it. I want to find my son. And I was just taking notes of things I was doing and basic things like that and, you know, numbers and dates and things like that. I just keep a track of stuff. And, and then partway through, the thought came, well, maybe I can share this with people. Suzanne Northrup came on the scene. So my mind started thinking while I'm writing this stuff, well, Maybe I can offer her, like I said, I never really had one-on-one -on -one communications with Suzanne, only at the readings. Yeah. Maybe I can offer her my story through her assistant that maybe she could take this short story I've got and find maybe two or three other short stories from other followers that I'm sure have stories, and she can put these together in her next book. Then I'm getting some of my information out to people that are going to, you know, help people out. Yeah. Well, that kind of got nixed by her, her uh, publishing company. And uh, it was at a reading just prior to this or right after this, trying to remember, that I'm getting this reading and she brings up in front of the audience, you know, it was, it was my son coming through and saying, well, why is he showing me numbers? And I said, oh, gotcha. I can talk about this. Start saying about my number theory. Well, why is he showing me a book? Ah, final thing. You know, well, because I was trying to clinch on that, the audience. Yeah. Well, because I'm writing about this. This is our story and so forth. And now it's up to you to make this decision. You know, are you going to 
you know, help further our cause type of a thing. Yeah. Well, that didn't work. You know, when I got the rejection after that reading at a seminar and the publishing company said, no, nah, they didn't want to do that. And about a month or so later, I see another medium, famous medium that's taken up the same type of a thing, soliciting information from his followers to put a book together about things that happened in their life. They would not get any money for it or whatever. Well, I started thinking, I'm going, maybe this is our story. Not for somebody else. This is for us, yeah. my son, and to tell this story. And then once that realization sunk in and I acted upon it, I thought, well, here I go. I got a, an 80, 85-page, two-part, you know, short stories looking at me. Well, yeah. if I'm going to do a book, then i got to break it down into chapters. And I said, okay, I'll break it down here, 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 and here. And then as I started breaking it down into chapters, a wealth of information started coming to me. I couldn't believe it. It went from 80, 90, 110, 120, 140, 150, 210, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And then, I, like you said, I do talk about that, the publishing headaches and how I came about going to author houses, a story in there, how my website names came about with the air in it and stuff like that, of all the meaning that shows the help I'm getting from the afterlife. Exactly. And as you're going to see, book one <laughs> I, I'm not going to say how it ends, but that's why book two is here now. Mm -hmm. uh, book one originally started where I had my name on there. Now, you're in book number two, uh, when I talk about my story, I say it is uniquely authored from beyond the grave by my deceased son. I'm a co-author. Now, that is validated at during the first chapter of book number two. And what has happened there... I, I found this reading, this medium, through this magazine, UpSpirit.com. I called him, and we had a one-hour phone reading scheduled. It had to be canceled one time because of a lot of hurricanes in Florida during the one month. So the uh, very next month in October, this a couple of years back, uh, we had a one-hour phone reading scheduled. The only thing this gentleman knew about me was my name was Dennis. I lived in Seattle. My wife, Wanda, would be on the phone. It was a one-hour reading. Yeah, on a Saturday. Four days before this, I'm standing in my bathroom. I'm looking at a tube of Crest toothpaste depleted. Throw it away in the wastebasket. I have two vials of Colgate toothpaste upside down draining. And my inner thought, not outward, inner thought is, I hope my wife has some toothpaste in her bathroom or I'm going to have to go to the store and buy some. <laughs> That's my thought. Yes. Yeah. Two days before the interview, I'm at an Albertson grocery store. I see a big, long line back by the meat counter, and I see it's on sale, 50% off. Well, I haven't done this in three years. I fill up my cart almost. <laughs> the freeze. Boom. Okay, here comes the reading, the phone reading. It's my son, my mother, and some other family and friends coming through. And then he goes, partway through, he goes, your son wants to call you Sam. I go, Sam? My name's Dennis. Well, Sam, he says, yeah, you know, Sam, like Sam the Butcher on the old Brady Bunch movie. <laughs> he says, what does that mean to you? I said, well, it's pretty good validation, I guess. I says, I was just at the meat market the other day, so he might have saw me. She goes, yeah, that's probably what happened. Good. Then we're going on. And he goes, okay, uh, this is just weird. He said, I'm only going to tell you what I'm hearing. I can't make nothing out of this. I said, okay. He says, he wants you to go to the store. He wants you to buy some toothpaste. It doesn't matter whether it's Crest or Colgate. Does that mean something? My wife goes, no. I said, yes, it does. He goes, really? 
I said, trust me. I said, you just hit a grand slam. Yeah. I says, I've got faith in your readings. He says, really? I said, you pat yourself on the back, give yourself a cookie, and let's move on. That was fantastic. I'll tell my wife later on what happened. <laughs> I have this on tape, you know, because this was a tape reading. I got this on tape. Yeah. Then, then it goes on, and then all of a sudden he goes, are you writing a book? And I just kind of, my mouth drops open. My wife's upstairs. She can't see this. I go, yes. He said, well, your son wants to know why his name is not on the front cover in front of your name because he's given you all of this information. Okay, so I start backpedaling and defending myself. <laughs> Wait a second. You know, the book's about Sean, this, this, and this. And, and then I hear him laughing over the phone a little bit. I said, what's going on? He said, well, while you were defending your honor, so to speak, I asked your son, is he serious about all these things he was saying? He said, no, I busted my dad's chops in real life. Why should it stop now? <laughs> And so uh, after that reading, I think it was the next day or something like that, I'm just sitting there just thinking. And I look up and I says, you know, you really want your name on that cover, don't you? And that's when I call back to Author House of Publishers and I says, hey, stop the presses. I says, I need his name put on the cover. He said, well, it's already in production. It'll cost. I says, I don't care. I says, I need to have his name put on the cover in front of my name. It'll say Sean and Dennis Spaulding. I said, Okay. So they stopped what they did. They redid it, charged me more money, and and that's what you see now. And that's a story how I why I advertise that. Yeah. Um. And so you, you kind of spelled it out here. Uh, the goal of your book really is to sort of open the doors so people kind of open their minds to the idea of communicating with their loved ones in the in the afterlife. Yeah. Basically, like I tell people, even though you're going to find I did a lot of research and a lot of. Uh, seminars, attending that, and dealt with a lot of mediums, and I still do, mm -hmm. to pass on messages. The whole essence of the whole book says you do not always need a psychic or a medium in your life to have contact with your loved ones. They're around you. They see what's going on. They know what's happening in your life. All you have to do is find out how. When somebody dies, it's their job to let you know they're fine, they're happy. It's your job to try to find out how they're doing this. Some people will turn themselves off to that. No, they don't believe that or, you know, they don't want to do that or whatever. But everybody all through life has these moments where you go, wow, the hairs rise up on your back, this and that, something happens, you're thinking about something, you might be thinking about somebody that died, mm -hmm. a thought goes through your mind, but you have always had that. I've been here before, I've done this, I've done that. Well, I react to those. I take notice of those. I write down everything I can think that happens to me at that time. I've got a basis now to start with. Now, if this happens again, you know, I'm ready. I, I look around. Maybe that's your loved one trying to say hello. Maybe they're trying to stop you from doing something. Maybe you're in a dangerous situation. But it's not good to ignore it. Yeah. It's good to listen, look around, and just, just take notice of what time of day is it? What day is it? Uh, what's going on in your life? Where are you at? What's going on? Whatever you can remember, write it down as soon as you can. And then if it happens again, you know, you've got something to work with. Yeah. Um, and then you alluded to your next book, uh, Messages from the Next World, His Signature. Uh, how about a yes. little preview of that? Uh, when we can expect it? And when is it sort of continuing the story here uh, that, that you detail in My Search for the Afterlife? Or is it a different sort of tone type book? Or just preview it a little bit for me. Uh, basically, it would be probably like part two of book number one. Yeah. It's just various messages that I show of what's happening. And um, let me put it this way. 
it, it is a continuation of book number one, but it also shows how my journey is continuous to this day. Let me just say that in April of this year, yeah. I, I had a reading with a medium who I was going to be on her radio show, and as a gift to me for being on her radio show a couple of times, she was going to give me a reading. Mm -hmm. And at first I told her when I first you know, mentioned that I wanted to be on her show that I wanted to pay for a reading. And she said, I didn't send you to my website to solicit you having a reading from me. I sent you there for more information. I said, wait, you don't understand. I says, this is part of my... Uh, what I do, my research, I says, readings help me. They help other people in the spirit world for me to help them. I said, this is what I do, and that's why I want it. Yeah. Well, she understood, and she did my reading for free. And rather than an hour reading, it went on for an hour and 45 minutes. Wow. And during this time, I'm sitting there, and she goes, your son, Sean, is bringing through another energy with him. I says, okay. And she goes, have you lost another child? My jaw drops. Now, this is just April yeah. of this year. The book was out last year. Mm -hmm. My jaw drops. I don't say anything. <laughs> she says, has, has anybody ever said this to you before? <laughs> and I'm sitting there, you know, the tears are coming. Yeah. I says, first off, no. No one has ever said this. And I said, yes, I do. And I had to tell her a story. I had an affair with Sean's mom. We were married five years. I had an affair. I, I got married to Sean's mom while I was in the military. Mm -hmm. I went into the military, what was it, a week after high school. You know, so you never got to sell your own, so to speak. Yeah. But that's, you know, but I'm not making excuses for that. Mm -hmm. Well, I love this girl. And, well, she became pregnant. And between the two of us, we realized the situations and, you know, what yeah. we thought had to be done at that time, mm -hmm. convenience. Well, she had family back in Italy, and that's kind of where she went back to. Well, for 35 years, almost 35 years this year, I have carried the guilt, the shame, anxieties over an abortion. I have never talked about that with anyone except two people. I talked about that with Sean about four years before he died. He died at the age of 24. I explained to him problems in our marriage of, you know, what went on with his mom and I and yeah. probably why we got the divorce and the affair and what had happened. And with my wife, Wanda, right now, we've been married. It'll be uh, 28 years next month. Mm -hmm. And she knew about this. And uh, so talking with the lady, yeah, I don't want to give everything away because yeah. that that is part of book number and two. And you're going to detail that in book number two? That will be detailed in book number two. That's going to probably end book number two. And that is going to be able to help people that have lost a child that never made it into this world. And all I could do say is when I left that reading, I'm upstairs like bawling like I'm starting to do right now. Oh, man. To tell my wife what just happened. Yeah. And she is so open to this now that uh, we talk about this now if a radio station wants to bring it up, which they have it sometimes, I talk about that because it can help people that have suffered this. And that's what my website is all about also. It doesn't have to be the child that was in this world you lost. It can be those through an abortion, miscarriage, stillbirth. That I always...
sat on the fence on the issues of pro-choice and pro-life. I heard about it. I never made a stance. I was like, well, if the woman wants to do it, that's her right. Well, they probably shouldn't. Would I do it? I've done it. Would I do it again? Probably not. But when I've had this reading, you talk about now I take a stance. I don't get up in somebody's face. You know, it's still, you, you have a choice. But here, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you 35 years later of what you're weighted down with and what that energy, that spirit goes back to tell me. You know, tell me, Ben, how you feel. Yeah. Wow, that sounds powerful. When do you expect uh, book number two to be released? Well, when you self-publish various things like that, you don't have a major publishing house behind you. Yeah. Everything is out of your pocket. Every Your success is going to be how much of a success can you afford at the beginning to get your message out. You know, and so it, it depends. I, I probably have to recoup something so I can move forward with a second. But with what I'm doing in my our journey together with my sons and what's happening, I don't doubt it's going to happen. I just have to believe it's going to happen and take care of the stuff as it comes up. And uh, I'm in Chapter 11 right now. And since I said I write chronologically, I am to the end of September, or I'm sorry, end of November of last year. And I gave it away that says that's probably going to be the ending of my book. Well, that happened in April of this year, so I'll probably, once I catch up to May of this year with my story in the writing phase, mm -hmm. that's probably when I'll start thinking about moving on to let's get this going, too. Nice. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Draw me a line when uh, when the new when you think the new book will be released, right. and we'll uh, we'll... we'll Bring it all back together again then. All right. Well, let me uh, go over the website here. It's www.sean39s-corner.com, correct? Right. That is one way. But when I started promoting myself on the radio, somebody came up with a unique idea, and we use also www.mysearchfortheafterlife.com. You can get to that both ways, and it's a user-friendly website. We've got high speed and we have dial up. Dial up is a little slower and some of the pictures and things like that, you're warned that it's going to take a few minutes for it to download, stuff like that. But if that's the only way you've got to go, well, that's the best way to go. There's a lot of information on the site. Uh, you can follow my, uh, my interviews, where I've been, what I've done, upcoming interviews will announce. The Garden of Flowers is on there. Yes. And other different stories and telling you about the book and various things like that. And how can people uh, pick up the book? Uh, through Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, that kind of stuff, and uh, where else? Right. Uh, if you go to the website, uh, you can go to AuthorHouse.com. That's one way of getting it because it's a little bit cheaper, both the soft cover and hard cover. You can get it from AuthorHouse.com. Save a few bucks that way. But also on there is Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. You can walk into any retail bookstore, ask for the book. It's not on the shelves yet. But uh, you can order it. The soft cover I hear comes within a week's time, maybe less than a week. And the hard cover takes out a little bit longer like most other hard covers. But yeah. uh, and anybody should carry it. You just ask for the title, My Search for the Afterlife, and they, they can pull it up on the computer. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you very much, Dennis, for being on the show. Your story is amazing. I really enjoyed it. Like I said, uh, my mother read the book. She really loved it as well. I think it's a, an important book. It's, it's a really touching book. 
that's uh, really the best way I can put it. It really uh, tugs at the heartstrings on a lot of occasions in the book. The book is My Search for the Afterlife. You can find also more information on the website, www.mysearchfortheafterlife.com. Dennis Spaulding, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you, Tim, for having me. It was great. I enjoyed it. That does it for this week's edition of Banal of America Audio. I want to thank Dennis Spaulding for coming on the show and sharing his amazing story with us. You can find out more information on Dennis, his book, and his research at www.mysearchfortheafterlife.com. I want to thank Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Ralph Molesworth of banalofamerica.com for your help and support with the website and the audio series. These folks are putting out some amazing and thought-provoking columns covering a wide range of esoteric topics, and you can find these columns at banalofamerica.com. We're not just an audio show, folks. Make banalofamerica.com part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you're a long-time Banal of America audio listener and you want to help support the audio series, click the PayPal button at banalofamerica.com, make a donation, help keep the show afloat. A program like this costs money, not just for long-distance phone calls, but also for bandwidth and a whole bunch of other stuff you wouldn't even imagine. And a lot of that cost comes straight out of my pocket with help from BOA Audio listeners who make donations. So if you can afford it, make a donation. We'd appreciate it tremendously. Next week on Banal of America Audio, we'll be discussing the mysterious and frightening creature known as the Chupacabra with Scott Corrales, author of Chupacabras and Other Mysteries. Scott will be going in-depth with us on the Chupacabra. We'll be covering it from a host of different angles. Plus, Scott's going to talk about Latin American ufology, where are the differences, where are the similarities between Latin American ufology and American ufology. You'll find out next week on Banal of America Audio. Stay tuned after this for an extended preview of Scott Corrales on next week's show. And thus, we conclude another week of Banal of America Audio. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. This is Tim Banal, signing off.